Acts 24, verses 14 through 16. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Father, we do say amen to your word. We glory in your word. It is our desire to live by your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would quicken this word to our hearts, enable me to be able to faithfully be your instrument of clay, and that uh, your spirit would be the uh, instrument of power using uh, your word to transform and uh, build up your people in your most holy faith. In Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Amen. A few months ago, I watched a video of a very experienced parachutist jumping out of an airplane to his death And a lot of people were puzzled as to how this could happen because he's made thousands of jumps. And what had gone on was that he was very preoccupied with uh, his uh, video equipment explaining to the other parachuters that he was going to be filming exactly what they needed to be doing. And they all jumped. He was the last one to jump. And you could see everything as he comes, uh, comes out of the airplane And he, after they open their chutes, he just sails on past them. And all of a sudden, you see the camera going crazy. And the uh, commentators point out that he had forgotten to put his parachute on, which is just an astounding thing for an experienced uh, parachutist. But it looks, as he's going out, as if he's totally confident. He's concentrating on other things until finally he realizes there is no uh, cord to uh, be pulling. That is a, an example of presumption. We're going to be looking at confident Christian, but this is an example of false confidence. Well, what is the difference between that and real faith uh, that many uh, people have uh, experienced down through history that seems almost as presumptuous? Some people think it's presumptuous to believe in God when you can't see God. There's no, none of our five senses that Rodney talked about before Uh, seem to be able to demonstrate uh, God as presumptuous to be taking risks, they say. In fact, some of the early missionaries, the family and friends, they would plead with these missionaries, don't be going off to this headhunter tribe. Uh, You're throwing your lives away. Why don't you go be missionaries to non-headhunters? Why are you just asking and inviting uh, trouble? A year or so ago, our family uh, read together a uh, marvelous biography on Adoniram Judson, who was the missionary to Burma. What a moving story. Uh, This was a guy who made incredible sacrifices, and his family, each one of them, very voluntarily and willingly, was making the same uh, sacrifices And they went through all kinds of discouragements. It took several years before they got their first 18 converts. And at one point, he was in prison more than once, but at one point he was in prison, and their prisons were nothing like our prisons. Uh, They were filthy. Uh, The place was just filled with the stench of what comes out of bodies. 
and he was stretched out in an uncomfortable position and it looked like he was never going to get out of that cell, that he was uh, just going to, to rot in there. And uh, one of the other prisoners sneered at him because he had been talking about why he'd been coming to Burma and had this burning, burning compassion for the, the heathen to win them to Christ. And he said, what about the prospect of the conversion of the heathen now? And Judson's instant reply was, the prospects are just as bright as the promises of God. He had an absolute confidence, <laughs> absolutely confident faith that probably his fellow prisoner thought was silly. It's just ridiculous to be having the kind of confidence he had given where uh, Adoniram Judson was at at that uh, uh, to- time. And yet his faith bore fruit. By the time that he died... He had not only translated the Scriptures and produced a grammar, uh, there were 8,000 believers in 100 churches. Uh, Almost the entire Karen people had been converted. And so what's the difference between the confidence that that parachutist had and the confidence of a, a man like this? Today I want to look at a confident faith, a confident hope, and a confident uh, conscience. And I want you to have all three and to throw off all false confidence because it's very possible to have a confident conscience. Conscience not bothering you at all. You just go out there very confident and yet it's a misinformed conscience that should not be confident. It's very possible to have the same kind of humanistic hope, very confident like the humanists have, and yet it's not grounded as it should be. Well, the first blessing that Paul had was a confident faith. Verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. There was no embarrassment, no hesitation. Uh, There is a total confidence in expressing his faith. And I think that this little verse here not only corrects three major errors concerning faith that we find all throughout the church today, but it also informs us on what is the nature of true faith. First major error that I hear frequently when I'm uh, out in in public is that faith is really a private, hidden matter of the heart. You know, it's not something that we talk about with others. But I want you to look at verse 14. He says, I confess to you. I confess to you, Paul is willing to make his faith publicly known uh, to those who are around him. It's not privately held matter. Now, I've known a number of people down through the years who absolutely, in fact, they say, oh, you shouldn't talk about politics or religion, okay? They absolutely think that uh, religion is not something you talk about in public. That's a private matter of the heart. But that is absolutely false conception about faith. Let me read you some scriptures. Romans 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, it's saying, yes, granted, it starts in the heart, but it is going out into confession, into profession. Philippians 2, 11, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue should confess. Matthew 10.32 Therefore, whoever confesses Me before men, him I will also confess before My Father who is in heaven. For whoever is ashamed of Me and My words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
Of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Uh, Luke 12.8, Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of heaven. So the first error is to see faith as being a private, hidden, secret matter of the heart. And what we see here is that genuine faith will always must find expression. It longs to find expression. It's of the very nature of faith to find expression. I've been debating with somebody via email on the second major error, and that is the idea that faith is a wild leap in the dark. You know, you're jumping out there hoping somebody's going to catch you, but you don't know if anybody's going to do it. It's a wild leap uh, in the dark. They say it's not based on reason. In fact, you believe against all reason. This guy that I've been debating with uh, just this past week uh, gave a... I think it was this past week, maybe the week before, uh, gave a testimony of uh, a person who he said had almost lost his faith because he saw that the Bible was riddled with errors. And I'm thinking, well, he has still lost his faith because he still believes the Bible is riddled with errors. He thinks most of it is is uh, very problematic. But he says, well, this guy believes anyway. He just decided he's got to believe in something, and so he's believing in God even though he thinks the Bible is wrong. But I want you to notice he says here that Paul believes his faith is according to the way. It's something objective, something you can look at, something that you can know exactly what it's about, and that he believes things which are written. So it's objective truth that is believed. It's not a wild leap in the dark. When the famous uh, scientist uh, Michael Faraday was uh, dying, now there were several fellow scientists who came to his bedside and uh, just wanted to talk with him uh, before he left. And one of them said rather boldly, Mr. Faraday, what are your speculations about your future? And with evident surprise to them, he, he replied, Speculations? I have none. I am resting on certainties. And then he quoted 2 Timothy 1.12, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. So, faith is not a wild leap in the dark. That's a liberal conception. It was liberals who invented that phrase. It is a certainty founded on the facts of Scripture. Faith is a gift of God, actually. That's why it can be certain. It's God giving us, and it's a form of illumination. It's opening our eyes and giving us this sense of certainty. The third major error that this uh, uh, passage corrects is that people will say, yeah, I believe, but they pick what things are comfortable. They pick and choose like a smorgasbord from the Bible what they want. And I was astonished with one person that I've been debating with who says that he's in love with God. He loves God and yet he rejects most of what's in the Bible as being mythology. Uh, well, I'm sorry, you're not even a Christian if you reject the Bible. This call of faith for Paul was a call to believe all things which are written in the Bible. Now, here is a little syllogism that you can remember to prove inerrancy. Two premises with an irresistible conclusion. First premise, God cannot lie and He cannot be mistaken. That's where all error comes from, right? Is either a lie or a mistake. And if you believe this first premise, God cannot lie and He cannot be mistaken, and you believe the second premise, 
that every word of Scripture is the Word of God, that all Scripture is the God-breathed Word of Jehovah, the conclusion is irresistible. Logic demands that you say the Scripture cannot lie or be mistaken. That means the Scripture is inerrant. And yet all across the church uh, of America, we have so-called evangelicals who have abandoned the doctrine of uh, inerrancy. And I'm not even willing to acknowledge their Christianity, uh, their faith, uh, when they do not hold to inerrancy. Now, there are some other manifestations of this error. Some people say that they believe everything that the church says. They don't have the foggiest notion what the Bible says, but they say, well, I believe the church. And some of these people who say they believe what the church says don't even know what the church uh, is teaching. Uh, There was um, uh, an evangelist by the name of Jonathan Whitfield who was uh, preaching to the coal miners in in England. And uh, he asked one of the coal miners, "Uh, what do you believe? Well, I believe same as the church. And what does the church believe? Well, they believe the same as me. And seeing he wasn't getting very far, he says, and what is it that you both believe? Well, I suppose the same thing. (laughs) That is not true faith. Uh, This is what is called by the Westminster Confession of Faith, implicit faith. See, the Roman Catholic Church uh, uh, taught their people that you've got to follow the church and believe the church implicitly. That means without reasoning. You just got to accept them at face value what they say, even if it doesn't make any sense. And the Westminster Confession says that is a false faith. It is not implicit faith. In fact, God says, let God be true and every man a liar, which means every bishop, every pope, if it needs be, if it's coming into contradiction with the word, let God be true and every man a liar. The true gift of faith is anchored in the Scripture. Why? Because God is the one who gives true faith and He always links true faith with the Scriptures. Now, let me give you some statistics that I hope will stir up your heart to pray that true faith will be restored to the church of Jesus Christ. George Marsden tells us that 85% of the students in the leading evangelical seminaries in the United States do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. That is absolutely staggering. We're, We're talking about the biggest evangelical seminaries in the United States. They've done surveys. 85% of those students do not believe in the inerrance of Scripture, which means evangelicalism has completely changed. In fact, it means the exact opposite of what evangelicalism used to believe. Uh, Even earlier, um, the sociologist Jeffrey Haddon did a similar survey all the way back in 1987. He took a survey of 10,000 USA clergymen 74% responded, so that 7,400 clergymen responded, and they were asked this question, do you believe that the Bible is the inspired and inerrant Word of God in faith, history, and secular matters? 95% of Episcopalians said no. The same answer was given by 87% of Methodists, 82% of Presbyterians, 77% of Lutherans, 67% of American Baptists, which means we are in desperate need, not just of revival, of reformation, wholehearted reformation, because the evangelical church is now a liberal church. It's no longer evangelical. Now, here's the question I want to pose to you. Do you pass the test? Do you pass the test on these three issues, or do you hold to one of those errors? Without shame... We need to be able to affirm everything that is in the Bible. 
Faith trusts God more than it trusts anything in creation. So those are the errors. Let's look next at the object, warrant, expression, and attitude of faith. Those four terms help you to define what true faith is. Faith's object is God, and it's not just some nebulous God that is out there, but it's the God of the Scriptures because Paul affirms his faith was in the God of my fathers. That's very defined. That's not nebulous. This is the same God that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David uh, believed in. I had a friend uh, several years ago who told me that uh, he no longer believed in the God of the Old Testament. He believed in the God of love that the New Testament portrayed. And I said, what are you talking about? The God of the Old Testament is exactly the same as the God of the New Testament. And he insisted that his experience told him otherwise, which already shows you where his ultimate source of authority was. It's not the Bible, but uh, his, his experience... But anyway, I thought I would try to dissuade him from this by explaining that the New Testament really is no different. Uh, he was arguing that the God of the Old Testament, man, he, he killed off the entire population of Canaan. Uh, he produced all of these imprecatory psalms calling down curses upon his enemies. Uh, this was the God who believed in capital punishment for so many crimes. I, I can't believe that Jesus called us to believe in love. So what I did is I tried to uh, quote several places where Jesus and the apostles affirmed those imprecatory psalms and how Jesus spoke about hell far more than the Old Testament did and how the book of Revelation calls down God's judgments and rejoices in God's vengeance far more than anything in the Old Testament ever does. So I thought I was pushing him back to being, okay, the God of the Old Testament is the same as the New. And he shocked me by saying, well... I guess I don't believe in the God of the New Testament either. And I was just blown away by this. And so my response to him was, you know, the God that you hold to is just a figment of your imagination and you have no solid basis for believing that such a God can even exist. But he said, no, I've experienced this God and my experience is more valuable to me than anything else. And so that was his, that was really uh, his ultimate uh, authority. Now, you may think that that's uh, rather strange and weird and bizarre. I do run, run across some real doozies out there. But here's my question to you. How many of you allow your experience, your desires, or your preferences to trump Scripture? That's the question. Because if it ever does, it's really no different in principle from that friend. He's just a little bit further along the road to apostasy than we are. Okay, now he's finally just become honest and he's ditched Christianity uh, altogether. But you can see that the object of his faith was something inside rather than the person who created all things in this universe and who gave to us the objective revelation of the Bible. The object of his faith was a false god, even though he called himself a Christian. And it's imperative. We not have a false faith and a false god. I've talked to evangelicals who say much the same. In fact, I was talking earlier in the service with Ken Howell how he was sharing with me how some people just say they don't believe that, that scripture. And I've had people, you read to them a scripture concerning, you know, predestination or women not being preachers or something like that. You, you read the Scripture. Well, I don't believe that. And I say, well, it's not my interpretation. You're saying you don't believe the Scripture? And uh, they just flat out reject certain portions of Scripture. Well, that ought not to be. 
Uh, that ought not to be. Uh, it's, a, it's a false faith and a false God that people hold to when they hold to that. And I've talked to evangelicals who say that their God does not believe in capital punishment or law or judgment. Their God is a God of grace. And I tell them that the object of their faith will let them down because He isn't the God of the Bible. Faith's object must be the God of Scripture, the same God as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob believed. Faith's warrant is the propositional truth of the Scripture. Now, let me define a warrant. It's not a warrant for your arrest, okay? Uh, a warrant is a justification for what we believe. It's a the basis, it's a grounding for what we believe. So, the, the object of our faith is God. He's the one that we believe, and the basis for believing in God is the Scripture. That's what we're saying. That's the basis, the warrant. <clears throat> Can't be wishful thinking, can't be our feelings, can't be what makes us comfortable, can't be Phil Kaiser, can't be what the church believes or what mom and dad believes. All of those things can let you down. Paul gave the warrant for his faith when he said, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I think most of us would affirm that. But here's where your faith can begin to become weakened. As the Scripture talks about faith being weakened, it can become weakened if we reject certain portions of the Scripture because they make us uncomfortable or they're politically incorrect or they're inconvenient, if anything other than Scripture drives our faith, then the body of the things that we do not believe in the Scripture can just keep getting bigger and bigger until finally we are totally apostate. Uh, one person that I'm debating with um, over the subject of inerrancy said this, yeah, just a couple of weeks ago. I respectfully suggest that one's Christian faith consists in a relationship with God in the heart and that outside of this, one's faith is in doubt. So the warrant for his faith was purely internal. Everything outside of his heart is in doubt. He said the Scriptures are in doubt. Everything else is in doubt. So you can see this is such a sad foundation uh, for faith. Genuine faith may doubt its own existence. It may doubt even our salvation, but it will not doubt that God is true when He speaks in the Scriptures. Why? Because God is the giver of such faith. Uh, we can have doubts in various areas, but this is where true faith is anchored. Third, faith's attitude is always Godward. Paul said, I worship the God of my fathers. <clears throat> False faith mixes worship of God with worship of the creation. Trust in God with trust in creation. It's got one hand on creation, one hand on God. It's saying, in effect, well, just in case, I better believe in God, and just in case, I better uh, believe in something else. It's not an unconditional surrender uh, to God. And I think this is illustrated so well by Niels Bohr, who received the Nobel Prize in physics on his uh, work on uh, atomic structure and quantum mechanics. One of his colleagues came into his office and was surprised to see a horseshoe securely nailed over Bohr's desk. And, of course, it was done the right way with, uh, you know, the opening up so that it can receive the good luck and none of it will leak out. Anyway, his American colleague asked with a nervous laugh, uh, Surely you don't believe the horseshoe will bring you good luck to you, Professor Bohr. After all, as a scientist, and Bohr interrupted him and said, I believe no such thing, my good friend, not at all. I'm scarcely likely to believe in such foolish nonsense. 
However, I am told that a horseshoe will bring you good luck whether you believe in it or not. <laughs> That's the way many people treat God. Okay, they don't really believe in Him, but they want to be good just in case, just in case we better not be too bad. But the attitude of true faith is one of true commitment, grateful worship, full-hearted trust. Okay, it's not a trust in good luck plus God. It is holy in God. Genuine trust is not holding on to God plus a good luck charm. It is motivated by an unconditional surrender of our lives to Him. And then finally, faith's expression is in word, in life, and in heart. Paul was not ashamed to profess Christ, not ashamed to be mocked as being part of a sect. Oh yeah, you're one of those cults, you're one of those sects. He was not ashamed of that. Not ashamed to live out the whole Scriptures, and he was not ashamed to offer up his heart unconditionally to God. Faith is the commitment of the whole man, holy to God, without any reservation. Now, last week I read a hilarious illustration of how you can tell the difference between a true faith and a false faith, and this was given by Ken Davis. Let me read it to you. In college, I was asked to prepare a lesson to teach my speech class. We were to be graded on our creativity and ability to drive home a point in a memorable way. The title of my talk was The Law of the Pendulum. I spent 20 minutes carefully teaching the physical principle that governs a swinging pendulum. The law of the pendulum is a pendulum can never return to a point higher than the point from which it was released. Because of friction and gravity, when the pendulum returns, it will fall short of its original release point. Each time it swings, it makes less and less of an arc until finally it is at rest. This point of rest is called the state of equilibrium, where all forces acting on the pendulum are equal. I attached a three-foot string to a child's toy top and secured it to the top of the blackboard with a thumbtack. I pulled the top to one side, made a mark on the blackboard where I let it go. Each time it swung back, I made a new mark. It took less than a minute for the top to complete its swinging and come to rest. When I finished the demonstration, the markings on the blackboard proved my thesis. I then asked how many people in the room believed the law of the pendulum was true. All of my classmates raised their hands, so did the teacher. He started to walk to the front of the room, thinking the class was over. In reality, it had just begun. Hanging from the steel ceiling beams in the middle of the room was a large, crude, but functional pendulum, 250 pounds of metal weights tied to four strands of 500-pound test parachute cord. I invited the instructor, an instructor to climb up on a table and sit in a chair with the back of his head against a cement wall. Then I brought the 250 pounds of metal up to his nose. Holding the huge pendulum just a fraction of an inch from his face, I once again explained the law of the pendulum he had applauded only moments before. If the law of the pendulum is true, then when I release this mass of metal, it will swing across the room and return short of the release point. Your nose will be in no danger. <laughs> After that final restatement of this law, <clears throat> I looked him in the eye and asked, Sir, do you believe this law is true? There was a long pause. Huge beads of sweat formed on his upper lip. <laughs> and then weakly, he nodded and whispered, Yes. I released the pendulum. It made a swishing sound as it arced across the room <laughs> at the far end of its swing. 
It paused. <laughs> it paused momentarily and started back. I never saw a man move so fast in my life. <laughs> he literally dived from the table. <laughs> Deftly stepping around the still swinging pendulum, I asked the class, "Does he believe in the law of the pendulum?" <laughs> The students unanimously answered, no. <laughs> now, for Calvin, the essence of faith was confidence. The essence of faith was confidence. There are many who affirm belief in God, but when push comes to shove and that pendulum comes swinging up at their nose, they dive under the table. Okay? When an evolutionist professor starts harassing them for believing in creation, and only an idiot would believe in creation. Uh, the poor hapless uh, Christian doesn't want to be considered an idiot, and so he dives under the table and he denies uh, his faith. It ought not to be. Now, the pendulum swinging up at that Christian may be something else. It may be the law of God. An embarrassment over that law makes him dive under the table. Or it may be God's call to repent of fornication. And as soon as it gets too hard, they can't take it. They dive under the table. Now, here is the thing. If you guys and gals want to teach your children not just to have faith, but to have a confident faith, a faith that will have them standing strong, even if Paul stood strong in the midst of this really difficult situation that he was in, You've got to have them have a heartfelt trust, a God-oriented trust, a well-grounded uh, trust uh, in, in God's Word. Now, here's three things that I recommend that you do for them. The first thing is I recommend that you really uh, work them through uh, some of the principles that I've listed out in my leadership booklet for raising leaders uh, many of those things will ground them firmly in the faith. And the second thing I recommend that you do is that you start doing some of my recommended uh, listening to tapes. There's a lot of tapes to listen to and readings on apologetics because this then will take them to the next step, making them strong enough where they will be able to tear down strongholds in other people's lives and everything that's keeping other people from having faith. And then the third step is to be able to have your kids teach others. And I recommend going through Bonson's philosophy tapes, but especially his lectures on uh, the Kelvin's Institutes. They're just a marvelous set of lectures. You go through those three, they'll be able to see through the errors that are out there. They're going to have a confidence in their faith that will stand them for the long haul. Okay, that was the first gift of God's Word, a confident faith. The second area of confidence that Paul had was in the area of hope. Now, hope deals with eschatology. Eschatology is two Greek words uh, dealing with last things doctrine, okay, doctrine of the last things, or doctrine of the future. But eschatology is merely everything that is before us. So it's dealing with the promises of God concerning our future individually, church's future, your family's future, this world's future, all of that is under the rubric of eschatology. Look at verse 15. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Now, you're going to see in your outlines that just like with faith, the object of hope is God. God is the object. 
Paul for sure does not have hope in his abilities. For sure does not have hope in Nero solving his problems. He said, I have hope in God. It's God who directs world history, not man. It's God who controls the future, not Satan. And even though Paul here is only speaking of one point, it's the final point of eschatology, all of eschatology has this confidence in God if it is a biblical eschatology. Now, the eschatology of some is the opposite. They live in fear of the Antichrist and especially of Satan who seems to be an invincible enemy to them. For many people, eschatology is a countdown of how Satan is winning control over planet Earth and he is bringing this planet to Armageddon. Its focus is not on God's victory, it's on Satan's victory. Uh, One book that was written on eschatology, Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth, has scared the daylights out of a lot of people, and they want the escape hatch that comes in there, so I guess there's a little bit of victory that they have, is that God can uh, get us out, but what he does in that book is newspaper uh, eisegesis. He's looking around him at all of the evils of the world, and these are proof positive that things are getting worse and worse, and that the Antichrist, that uh, demon-possessed man, is about to appear. That was back in the 70s. Our eschatology is an eschatology of hope precisely because it focuses upon God and His victory in history. Our hope is not an I hope so kind of hope. It's a confident hope. It's a hope that takes the promises of God at face value and acts upon them. So when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, we've said over and over, we take it at face value. It may not look like it, but we take it at face value. We try to take on those gates of hell. When he gives us the great commission, we don't say, wow, sure doesn't look like it's happening. Let's reduce it to a smaller commission of discipling a few individuals out of the nations. No, we're not going to be satisfied with anything less than discipling the nations into being Christian uh, nations. And why do we believe in this? It's because our hope is in God. And God is for, if God is for us, who can be against us? Second, hope's attitude is a confident expectancy. Paul said, I have hope in God or literally into God, or some translate it toward God, but his back is not faced uh, away from God. I mean, his back is not toward God. His front is toward God. In other words, his expectancy is that everything in history flows from him. Now, let's apply that. What is our hope for American politics? It's not in man. It's in God. What is our hope for our own personal lives. It's in God, not man. Uh, I believe that our nation is doomed to judgment because of the promises of God concerning the future unless it repents. Why? Because God has guaranteed that nations that are in rebellion against Him will come to judgment. That's a guarantee. God's in control of history. But if they repent, God is a God of mercy. Now, here's the encouraging part. God's the one who gives repentance, isn't he? Uh, Acts earlier in the book said, then has God granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. (laughs) And so we can have confidence even when times are tough because we look to God. Even in the sanctification of our individual lives, we're looking to God. Sanctification of our wives, our children, our associates. We might get frustrated. No, we look to God. God alone is the, uh, the, the place that we put our expectancy, His power. 
Hope's substance is the promise that there will be something. Now, in this case, it's a promise of a future resurrection of our bodies. He says that there will be a resurrection. But you know what? The Bible is full of promises that have not yet happened. Now, there are two implications of this fact. And the first implication is that hope that God calls us to is to hope when everything looks hopeless. That's the first implication. This is really important. Hope's substance is always the promise of the not yet. It hasn't happened yet. Okay? That's what makes it a divine hope rather than a humanistic hope. A humanistic hope is based on what is possible, humanly speaking, and the divine hope is based on the promises of a God who cannot lie even though it looks like it's not possible, humanistically speaking. When God promises that all nations will be Christian and that of the increase of Christ's government of peace there will be no end, that hope seeks to achieve that. And it was that kind of hope that led um, the province that my parents worked on for so many years in Ethiopia uh, to go from when they first went there, there were not very many Christians, uh, to there being over 95% evangelical Christian uh, in that province of Kambata in Ethiopia. So the fact that things look hopeless around us is no reason not to hope. Here's how Paul words it in Romans 8.24. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Romans 8.24. This is why G.K. Chesterton said, Hope means hoping when things are hopeless or is not virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. So here's my question. Do you have a fake hope or do you have a divine hope? Do you have a confident hope? The fact that things are terrible is simply a testing of what kind of hope that you have. Genuine hope always shines when everyone else thinks that it's hopeless. Now the second implication of Paul's statement is that hope must constantly find its strength and its virility in the promises of Scripture. It cannot find it anywhere else. It's got to be in the Scripture. Fill your mind with biblical promises that give an eschatology of hope. Now, let's just apply this to your own personal eschatology of your future because Satan's constantly trying to rob us of hope in terms of our own uh, character. When Satan tries to rob you of hope and say, you can never overcome that sin, just give it up, you've tried and tried, forget about it, you need to be like Jesus and say, get behind me, Satan, I am not going to think that blasphemous thought, I am not going to call God a liar, instead I'm going to affirm that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or quote Luke 1.37, for with God nothing will be impossible. Now when you're exhausted, you're tired, and you just feel, I can't go on, Fill hope within your soul by quoting the promises of Scripture, like Isaiah 40, verse 29. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, He increases strength. What you're doing is you're building a supernatural hope that actually receives what is hoped for. Okay? Uh, when Satan tempts you to think, nobody loves you, everybody hates me, I'm going to eat some worms. <laughs> um, resist that thought with Jeremiah 31, 3. No, I'm not going to believe that because God says, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. When you think, I can't go on, remind yourself that Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. 
when it seems that you're working and working two jobs and you can't bring in enough income and Satan's tempting you to think God's not going to supply for you, resist him. Give yourself hope by saying, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. When you're fearful, boy, that robs you of hope, doesn't it? When you're fearful, quote the promise, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7 Or, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1, verse 9. So the point is, when God calls us to hope, He's not calling us to buck it up, tough it out. That may or may not help you. He's calling you to ground your hope in the Scriptures as you claim these promises and say, Lord, by faith, I affirm this hope. I'm going to grow even as you have called me to grow. I'm going to receive the supernatural from your throne. Your personal eschatology keeps pressing toward that upward mark in Christ Jesus. So get used to preaching Scripture to yourself to give the certainty of hope. And then hope's fulfillment in this case is the resurrection according to verse 15. You see, death is the last enemy to be destroyed. Now, this is so encouraging to me. If you read 1 Corinthians 15, you will discover that death is the last enemy. Christ must remain in heaven until the, all enemies are put under His feet. The last enemy is conquered as He's starting to come back. We're caught up in the twinkling of an eye. Then is brought to pass the saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. Where is your sting? Which means... Every other enemy has to be put down prior to the second coming, right? And so that's, to me, a very, very encouraging uh, hope. It means that the church has victory after victory yet to be achieved. All of history is moving toward that final uh, enemy being destroyed by King Jesus. Now, that is a confident hope. So this passage calls us to have a confident faith, confident hope, and then lastly, a confident conscience. Verse 16. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, we're going to look very quickly at how this is really a comfort that is fragile. Satan can break it so easily. We're going to look at the definition or the nature of this comfort and then the secret of this comfort. The fragility of this can be seen in that phrase, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense. He had to work hard at it. Now, if Paul had to work hard at having a clean conscience, we've got to work hard at that as well. It's so easy to fall into sin, to cover up sin, to allow Satan to take away the comfort of a good conscience. Or, on the other hand, to harden our conscience and to have a false confidence uh, that is not going to help us at all. So this is a very critical area, having comfort and security that is divine. The word strive implies it doesn't happen automatically. The word offense implies that both God and man can be offended by a Christian. Now, in our postmodern world, people don't like to think about that. God can be offended by you even though you are secure in Jesus for all of eternity. He can still be offended. If the reason your conscience is confident is because you think, hey, God just ignores my sin, He sweeps it under the carpet, it's no big deal, then uh, you have a false confidence. Just because you are saved does not mean you should not strive every day to have your conscience cleansed in the blood of Christ. Paul said he always strove. It never ended. It's a fragile thing that can be lost. Point B, 
Paul describes this comfort as having a conscience without offense. Now, if you think of the conscience as having three, three parts to it, just sort of like Washington, D.C. has three parts. There's the legislative, there's the judicial, and there's the executive function of the conscience. Legislative function of the conscience is God's Word written on our hearts, His law written on our hearts. Now, here's the problem. We can have imbalanced consciences when we allow the laws of man to begin to grab our hearts. And God never intended the legalistic additions to God's law to be defiling our conscience. Uh, The moment we step away from the law or we add to the law, our our conscience becomes imbalanced. So that's the legislative function. It's got to be having the right laws. The judicial function is the function of our law saying you're condemned, you did wrong, you're guilty, and we realize, okay, I, I am guilty. Now, some people don't like to be judged nowadays. Uh, they don't like the fact that their conscience is, is uh, making them guilty. But in John Bunyan's second parable, everybody knows about Pilgrim's Progress. There's another one called, uh, what is it called, uh, Rodney, uh, City of Mansoul or something like that, the battle for the city of Mansoul. But in there, you know, the judge is looking out for the security of this person. Uh, He's looking for uh, his best. You don't kill the judge simply because he's telling the truth. And in the same way, you don't harden your conscience simply because it's troubling you. You value the judge function, but you say, hey, judge, you need to be instructed that uh, these are the laws that you need to be judging by. And then the executive function makes the punishment. That's what makes you feel wretched when uh, you did something wrong. That's the executive function. All three functions need to be healthy to have a confident conscience. And if you harden your conscience and you don't hear the voice of those three, you've got a false confidence. And of course, if you've got a confident faith, a confident hope, you will be on your way to having a confident conscience because it's not going to be governed by the rules of man. It's going to be governed by the the golden law of Scripture. And daily it's going to be cleansed by the perfect grace of Jesus Christ, which washes away our guilt. If you've got a lousy conscience, uh, yeah, you're going to not be encouraged by verse 15 that speaks of a future judgment and resurrection. People don't like to think about that. Uh, But as a Christian, we ought to look forward to Judgment Day. Why? Because we are justified. We are secure in Christ Jesus, and that's the time when every vestige of sin will be completely removed from our lives. Now, let's return to the first question of how you can tell the difference between a presumptuous confidence and a true confidence. Well, it comes by faith in God, through Christ and what He has purchased for us, by the power of the Spirit, and grounded upon the Scriptures. That is so critically important. Any other doorway for confidence is really a false confidence. You're going to be walking through a door that leads to an elevator shaft. So it is a faith in God through what Christ has purchased by the power of the Spirit and grounded upon the Scriptures. And it would be just as foolish to jump out of the airplane at our death into eternity without faith in Jesus Christ as it would be for that um, parachutist to jump out of his uh, real airplane and uh, to do it without a parachute. Confidence by itself is not enough. It's got to flow from a vital saving union with God through Jesus Christ. Let me end with a story. Just before World War II, the main school in Itasca, Texas, uh, had a fire 
and uh, it was burnt to the ground and it killed 263 children. It was just a horrifying uh, tragedy. After the war, the town decided to build a, a new school, but they wanted to make sure this would never happen again. So they put into it what uh, they described as the, um, what? the finest sprinkler system in the world. And the town was very proud of it. They gave tours, using the honor students to give uh, guided tours to citizens and other visitors who came through there. And they thought never again would a fire disaster happen. Well, fast forward a few years, uh, the town was growing so much that they had to add a huge wing uh, to this school. And as they started construction, they discovered something rather disconcerting. They discovered that the sprinkler system had never been connected. All of those years, they had this confidence, but it was a false confidence. Are you vitally, vitally, really connected to God by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? You can't just be depending upon your parents or upon others. Are you vitally connected to the Lord Jesus Christ? It's my prayer that not one of you would enter into eternity with a false confidence and your salvation. It's only as you yield yourself in unconditional surrender to Jesus, trust Him for your salvation, that at that moment the waters are turned on not only for your salvation and eternity, but the rest of your life you can be living with a confident faith, confident hope, and a confident conscience. May you have all three. Amen. Father God, we thank You. We thank You. We thank You so much for the grace and the love that has bestowed upon us so many blessings. And we value these three blessings. We pray that each one here would have a confident faith, a confident hope, and a confident conscience because we are walking in the light as Jesus is in the light. We are being cleansed by His grace day by day. Uh, we have the certainty of the truths of Your Scripture. I pray, Lord, that uh, there would be no one that would walk from this room without Your sovereign grace reaching in and giving to that person a genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in His name. Amen.